Our first reading today comes from the Christian scriptures, from Acts 17, 24 to 28. The God who made the world and everything in it is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. And our second reading is from the Upanishads, the sacred Hindu texts which have been shared already today. Brahman is joy, for from joy all beings have come. By joy they all live, and unto joy they all return. Again, I want to express my gratitude for the opportunity to be before you this morning in this beautiful, prayerful, loving space with all of your joys and concerns. My name is Melody Moberg, and I am Director of Religious Education at University Unitarian Church, and I'm also a seminary student. Um, I attend Seattle University's School for Theology and Ministry, and being there part-time, I'm in year two of probably a thousand. <laughs> Six and a half years ago, I moved to Seattle and I began working in religious education. I was 23, and this was my first real job. It was also my first year paying rent and discovering how to find my way as a young adult. During my first year at University Unitarian Church, I found a gathering of women that grounded me, bringing me the community that I had left behind. This gathering, entitled the Intergenerational Women's Group, included women and girls of all ages, from teens to folks in their 80s. We followed a far format based on the work of educator Parker Palmer. Palmer is a Quaker, and out of the theological richness of his tradition, which values silence, he popularized a method of attentive listening and attentive speaking. In the group, we shared stories around a central theme, and most importantly, listened to each other. Really listened. No crosstalk, no giving advice, no mm-hmms, no. And if you've done this before, it's quite challenging. It was powerful to witness these stories. Stories of going within, Stories of changing course, stories of embodiment, of saying yes, stories of saying no. And it was equally powerful for me to hear myself say my own story. Hearing ourselves and listening is a spiritual practice. It's powerful discernment. Listening to our own stories can bring us into alignment with our deepest selves. Parker Palmer addresses this extensively in his book, Let Your Life Speak. In it, he writes, before you tell your life what you intend to do with it, listen for what it intends to do with you. Before you tell your life what truths and values you have decided to live up to, let your life tell you what truths you embody, what values you represent. When we listen for our life to speak, we aren't looking for what we should be hearing. We aren't worried about what others expect of us or what we think is true of us. 
Letting our lives speak opens us to what moves us in mind, body, and spirit, regardless of whether it makes rational sense. The biggest takeaway I got from the intergenerational women's group is that the spiritual quest is never over. It doesn't, as I thought at the time, end at 25, or 30, 40, 90. It doesn't end with a job or seminary or ordination, children, marriage, pilgrimage. It doesn't end with rock bottom or with encountering death. The spiritual quest doesn't even end with realization. There's always room to grow and change. There's always room for community. And through hearing the stories of these powerful women, my own story changed and grew. I was transformed through encountering their stories. Expanding the story of our lives happens not only when we encounter other people. Our stories expand when we hear the truths of other traditions. Like many young people, I created a story about the divine. And this began when I was four years old. I prompted my mother to join a Unitarian Universalist church by grilling her with theological questions from my car seat. Some of you parents may recognize that. Who's God? Where does God live? What does God look like? What clothes does God wear? So our UU faith draws upon six rich sources of inspiration, including Judeo-Christian stories, stories from world religion, science and reason, and the lived example of prophetic leaders. My own story of the divine expands through listening to these sources. It expands through being surprised at what resonates, at what inspires me. And much like listening to our lives speak, inspiration is not totally rational. It isn't value neutral. Inspire. Breathe in. Inspiration can be as essential as breathing. We can suffocate without it. Our bodies and minds can be choked by toxicity without it. And where we find inspiration can be surprising. I grew up the daughter of two strong atheists and attended a Midwestern UU congregation that was very reasonable. It was a surprise when I was called to attend a Jesuit Christian seminary in preparation for ministry. It was a surprise to me to discover that I really liked using God language. It was a surprise when I encountered stories from Christianity and Hinduism and struggled to make sense of them. And it was a surprise when ultimately these stories expanded my own story of the divine. And during my first year of seminary, it was a surprise to learn just how narrow and conventional my understanding of God was. It surprised me because I grew up UU, and so I should obviously have the best, most rational, biggest sense of anyone. And despite my best intentions, intellectually holding that God, spirit of life, the power of the universe, if she exists, is greater than all of our categories, myths, words, or concepts of gender, I was surprised to realize that that narrow God as an old man in the sky idea was firmly lodged in my subconscious. 
The walls around my idea of God were thick and pressed in. The walls of this box were suffocating. And in Christianity and Hinduism, I found four stories about God that expanded the walls of this box. I'm not a Hindu and I am not a Christian. My interpretations of these rich traditions are a few subjective facets of very complex wholes. The stories perplex me, which is part of their power. And as such, I probably don't have the facts all right. Think of this as humble notes from the diary of my life, a collage of meaning making. The first story about God is that God is paradoxical. The divine is way bigger than human logic. Unitarianism emerged historically as a reaction against the Trinity, the ancient Christian formulation that God is three persons in one, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are distinct and yet the same. The Nicene Creed, which so many Christian churches affirm, uses very complicated language to create distinctions and parameters around this idea of one and three and three and one. It writes that Jesus Christ is begotten and not made of the very same nature of the Father by whom all things came into being. And similarly, it affirms that the Holy Spirit is uncreated and perfect. As a UU seminary student, these distinctions are some of the hardest puzzles for me to wrap my mind around. And part of that is because making the puzzle work is less pressing for me because my theology doesn't rest on it making sense. But surprisingly, I was able to get a sense of what the Christian Trinity was all about a little more when I held it up to the foil of Hinduism. Hinduism is really a catch-all name that colonizers gave to all of the religions in the Indus Valley of what is now India. There are broad generalizations that can be made about the religion, but it's ultimately a diversity of beliefs, each slightly different in each village. In contrast to Christianity, which holds strongly to monotheism and Trinitarianism, there are 330 million deities in the Hindu pantheon. And yet, many of these deities are avatars or manifestations of each other. These 330 million deities are simultaneously three deities, which are simultaneously one. They are distinct and yet unified. This is a real puzzle and it emerges from a very different thought system than we encounter in the West. Aristotelian logic, which was created in Greece in the fourth century BCE, had a huge impact on the development of philosophy and theology in the West, and it continued to hold a lot of influence through at least the 19th century. And in contrast, Indian philosophical systems didn't grow from this point, and they require um, that things don't have to be one thing or the other. What if the divine isn't just one thing? What if it isn't just three things? What if it isn't just 330 million things? God is, according to the mystics, ineffable. In the Upanishads, Hindu writings about the divine tacked at the end of ancient scriptures called the Vedas, some writers 
describe God through only negatives. And this is to affirm that no one word can describe something so vast and mysterious as the divine. They describe the divine as netty, netty, not this, not this. Through freeing ourselves from the limitations of language and descriptors, opening to the gifts of paradox, we, become we are more fully able to recognize the mystery that is behind the divine. The second story about God which, which surprised me in Christianity and Hinduism is that God is both near and far. For Hindus, the word for the vast infinity of consciousness, undergirding all that is, is Brahman. And the word for the innermost self is called Atman. The word namaste, which typically closes yoga practice, means the divine in me bows to the divine in you, and that speaks to Atman. The ultimate is both near in Atman and far in Brahman. And complicatedly, Brahman and Atman are not gods or even attributes of God. They're not beings so much as being. In Hinduism, ultimate liberation is referred to as moksha, and this is the realization that everything in our sensual, phenomenal, beautiful world is Brahman, including Atman, our innermost selves. We are the same as infinite consciousness. Realizing our unity with the divine leads to union with the divine. In the Bhagavad Gita, it is written, the offering is Brahman, the oblation is Brahman. Offered by Brahman into the fire of Brahman, Brahman will be attained by him who always sees Brahman in action. And similarly, in the Upanishads, we hear this message. As rivers flowing into the ocean, find their final peace, and their name and form disappear. Even so, the wise become free from nature and form and enter into the radiance of Supreme Spirit, who is greater than all greatness. In truth, who knows God becomes God." End quote. This realization is achieved through a number of means through meditation and in a very popular school of thought, cultivating non-dual thinking. This means training the mind to view things holistically rather than sorting um, things into this or that. For Christians, God is both near and far through imminence and transcendence. It's important for Christians to see that God is big and huge and beyond all of our categories. And this transcendence is usually seen through the lens of God the Father, the creator of the cosmos, so to speak, the ultimately unknowable. And simultaneously, Christians see God in the midst of lived reality as Jesus Christ. In the first millennium, Christians spent a lot of time articulating how Christ is both fully divine and fully human. For Christians, God as Christ suffered just like we do, and consequently, they believe that God is really with us, really feels our pain, knows what it's like to suffer, to be an infant, to be thirsty, to be loved. The third story about God which opened my own understanding um, is about having a personal relationship with the divine. There's a trinity in Hinduism, 
of three primary gods, Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver of all things, and Shiva, the destroyer of worlds. And even though Brahma, the creator, looks a lot like God the Father from the Christian tradition, nobody really cares and nobody really worships him. And that's because Brahma's work is done. He's too distant to be of real interest to devotees, even though he may seem the most godlike from the Christian perspective. Instead, the complicated figures of Vishnu and Shiva are worshipped, in part because their characteristics seem achingly human. We have Vishnu, who becomes the beloved sensual Krishna, and Shiva, who is known for sensuality as well as asceticism and deep meditation. Hindu goddesses and gods are transcendent, but also fallible. This, to me, is reminiscent of how Christians worship God through Jesus. Christians feel comfortable speaking to Christ and having him as a personal presence in their lives. He's more accessible, less distant in his humanity and suffering and kindness than God the Father. I want to uplift a cool scholarly term I learned again called henotheism. Henotheism is a form of worship which means one God at a time. And this is how many Hindus worship. Specific deities have specific attributes, and yet when they are worshipped, they are worshipped as though they are the one and only God, with all of the attributes of the divine. In the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu manifests into the world as Krishna, and says to his devotee Arjuna, Nothing is higher than I am, Arjuna. All that exists is woven on me, like a web of pearls on thread. And he continues, when devoted men sacrifice to other deities with faith, they sacrifice to me, Arjuna, however aberrant the rites. And finally, the fourth story which opened my too small idea of God is that there are many paths to the divine. Actually, I totally knew that. I grew up UU. Um, but I'm particularly intrigued by the juxtaposition of asceticism and monasticism with opulence and embodiment in both of these traditions. In the Hebrew scriptures, it is written, be still and know I am God. Words which speak to the path of silent prayer, of monasticism. And yet God is also found in the world in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus reportedly says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. God is found through community and activism, as well as silence, silent contemplation. There are many ways of worshiping in Hinduism, and these are typically very different than historical Unitarianism. In Hinduism, worship is an embodied practice. While we, as you use, mistrust the idea of idols, Hindus practice darshan, which is a practice of gazing upon images of the divine, statues, artwork. And to them, this practice literally invokes the presence of these goddesses and gods here and now. This way of worshiping makes me become more aware of the importance of embodiment, of color, art, texture, sense, movement, and weight. These kinds of practices, I think, can make the whole world come alive with meaning. 
I'm certainly not alone in being impacted in my sense of the divine through exposure to the gifts of Hinduism and Christianity. Diana Eck, a scholar of Hinduism and a practicing Christian Methodist, describes her journey towards an expanded concept of divinity in her book, Encountering God. Diana Eck writes, Encountering Darshan in India both challenges and enlarges my own concept of God. I remember a title on the shelf of the library in the Methodist Church in Bozeman, Montana, which reads, your God is too small. And he was. As one theological liberation movement after another has discovered, he is also too male, too white, too much at home in Western culture. India's theological gift to me has been to discover that God can be addressed as mother, can wear the ashes of the cremation pyre, and can beckon us to dance. I want to return to the idea of boxing in the divine and boxing in our sense of self. In my own limited experience, I've discovered two ways to expand this box, to liberate whatever sacred truths we keep clamped down. The first path is to notice what makes you come alive, really alive, what resonates deeply, what fills you with love and joy and purpose, and to follow that. The second path is to actively challenge the ideas that make you uncomfortable. Do you love God language? Try going without it. Listen to humanism. Embracing discomfort and asking what if is a gradual process rooted in play, improvisation. If the divine exists, it is a force for liberation. Most importantly, for liberating oppressed peoples and being present in times of deep darkness and discomfort. It's also a force of liberation in our own lives, gently coaxing us out of our narrowly defined sense of self into something larger, something more fully alive and more achingly human. And so it is. Amen. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings to the universe who we are. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings.